We made a big mistake about one of the data points we said in passing. We had said that 95% of men had a porn subscription, but this is inaccurate. The best data we have indicates that roughly 10% of men currently have porn subscriptions. We decided to leave the audio in to show that we can make mistakes, and ask that if you notice any others, please correct us. As always, Sapientia is a conversation. We humbly ask for your criticism, and as always, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Sapientia. I'm Justin. And I'm James. And this is our feminism and the male identity crisis episode. So, we're going to start with the treacherous ground of feminism. And we say treacherous not because feminism is a bad thing inherently. We say treacherous because it is... It, the the phrase walking on eggshells, um, I think, is definitely appropriate here. Yeah. Uh, it it takes many forms, it uh, takes many breaths, and is seen in so many different opposing and incorrect ways that we want to set out with our definitions first so that everybody that's watching can be on the same page. Yeah, we have to be especially nuanced. Yes, es- especially nuanced. <laughs> so let's just start um, with what feminism is. So as we said in our Filling the Gaps episode, feminism is simply a commitment to gender equity, which means that you believe men and women should have uh, even that's dicey hold on is it's so hard it's so hard so essentially that you believe that the that there should be equal let's say advantages or positions uh basically you want to get rid of all of the systems that arbitrarily disadvantage women and perhaps even the ones that that are non-arbitrary because you know societies are ultimately up to our creation so equity meaning um having reasonably equal standing um and actually just before i get too far with the word we're using the word equity here because equity means something particular so some people phrase this as equality and equality means that you have equal opportunities for instance um but equality doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is the same. Equity is a little different. Equity also takes into account some of the differences. Like, for instance, if you had someone in a wheelchair, in order for them to get around, they need access ramps, right? So in an equal society, there might be stairs that everyone can use. But in an equitable society, there would also be a ramp such that the person in the wheelchair can get up. So, so what you're saying is equity is a more nuanced kind of equality. Yeah, actually. <laughs> actually, yes. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting to note too, like the the idea of like gender equity is really important because there was I had seen at one point a definition of feminism that was like um, a movement to elevate women to the same social position as men, and that 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 had some spice to it. Um, and I think partially because that can take on the um, sort of proverbial, well, you know, who gets to decide when they, when women are elevated to the same level as men. Mm -hmm. Um, So that idea of gender equity is actually super critical to actually having real discussions about it because it allows for, or it doesn't allow for questions like that to be realistic. Right. And there's also the aspect of 
it's a signature of changing times. So uh, when feminism as a as an ideology started becoming vogue, you're talking first wave feminism, which we'll get into what those are. Right. Um, and like late 19th, early 20th century, the main problems were ostensibly public problems that were painfully obvious, like women not being able to vote or women not being able to hold certain jobs in society or, you know, women simply being relegated to all, do all the domestic work. Like this sort of stuff was what early feminism was about. And so the question of, you know, gender equity was really, well, how do we fix that? Because those are the most obvious problems. Now the problems are deeper and more insidious, as we had said in our genders, uh, gender pay gap episode. But also, you know, uh, modern feminism is also more concerned about inclusivity and about questions like uh, the status of trans women and also non-binary people is something that's very much in the uh, zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, that 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 kind of like gender identity, gender expression, sexual identity kind of stuff is actually some place that is of particular interest to me as it relates to feminism because there's a lot of me that feels like, well, maybe feminism isn't the right camp to lump all of this into. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there are some things that actually do affect women, and so that needs to be addressed. Like, you know, trans women as an example. Like, mm -hmm. okay, great. Um, but the the whole thing, I think, gets lumped together a lot. Um, feminism tends to be seen as this, you know, big aggregate of all kinds of social issues that, you know, there's race, there's gender, there's sexual identity, there's, you know, income inequality, there's like all this random crud that's shoved together um, that is then just, you know, swept under the label of feminism. Um, and nobody really knows what that means. I think, and yeah. it's maybe there's a if I may chime yeah. in there too. Sure, I think that the I think that what you're getting to is how do I describe this <laughs> very carefully and preferably in English for our listeners. So, I think the reason why it's called feminism is more or less for historical reasons, right? Yeah, and the first people who cared about this stuff were feminists like uh if, if you go back to first white feminism many of them were abolitionists so to, to give you a, a sense of the kinds of people that they were um but i think that because it's used in this catch-all sort of way yeah it can get really confusing and i think that there's a lot of ways in which people use the word but they're often talking past each other right yeah and we're we're hoping that in this very precise, very elaborate, um, you know, description of what we're doing that we avoid the talking past and mm -hmm. talk directly to you, our listeners, and that you comment and talk back to us. So please do that. Yeah, well, we're probably going to get some things wrong. Um, and this is going to be a super touchy topic. So absolutely, counter arguments are more than welcome. Yeah, I mean, what do a couple of, you know, white guys know about <laughs> feminism, right? <laughs> I'm only half white. Well, okay. That's fair. That, that, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, 
I guess you you know you know fifty percent more about <laughs> feminism than I do. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, so, just to reiterate some of these points, there's a lot of different forms of feminism, actually, especially if you really want to get into some of the philosophy and academics of feminism. So I have just a couple of ones here. I'll read through the, this list, which all of this information, all of this list I'm, I'm about to read up to you, you can find this on Wikipedia and then some. So you have ecofeminism, radical feminism, Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, anarcho-feminism, womanism, indigenous feminism, transnational feminism, post-structuralist feminism, and the list goes on. Yeah, um, on and on and on. It there's a lot, and that's because it's a because we define it so broadly. You can see that there's a lot of internal. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there. And there's a lot of diversity that's possible because if you believe in gender equity, um, but you have a certain perspective on, say, epistemology or uh, meta ethics, right? You can you can go from being like a, like a Kantian feminist who's looking who who's more interested in a kind of i don't know like it probably end up being a more conservative sort of feminism versus like if right. you're if you're a diehard moral relativist uh who's basically a, a proto-utilitarian you're probably in the transnational uh globalist sort of camp right and the the minor philosophical differences in your commitment to gender equity really changes the way in which your feminism manifests itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that manifestation is also like how it actually accomplishes what it wants to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that we see, like just in the way that, you know, feminism and, you know, pay gap as an example, like how it's presented mm -hmm. is huge. Um, because if you present facts and numbers and statistics to people, they'll probably scratch their heads and come up with some kind of, I wouldn't say fallacious understanding of the material, but maybe just not as well-nuanced, one mm -hmm. might say. Um, but instead, we have this nice clickbaity kind of news bullshit that goes on that's just like, oh, we're going to tell you how you want to feel about it because that's what we do. That's what gets clicks. Yeah, and it's, we should do an episode on the media because that is, in a lot of ways, an artifact of the media. Um, but I think that a lot... The real problems, if you get down into it, like with so my girlfriend works for Mabel Wadsworth, which is a feminist uh, health center, and so I actually do interact with a lot of feminists, and the vast majority of them are actually really level-headed people who have the statistical understanding, but also the experience there to draw from and actually articulate the real problems they face. I wouldn't say just women, but also other people of different genders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that experience is important, yeah, but, very. and, and I say important in a way because, you know, numbers and statistics are good because they're facts, they're, they're artifacts of what's really going on, but it's not as good a representation of what goes on, you know, in the, in the micro level, um, you know, statistics generalize, that's what they're supposed to do. That's the whole function. Um, you can't. 
you know, I made the joke the other day to you that, you know, Bayesian statistics and Bayesian <laughs> means create people that don't exist. Like, yeah. the average person literally doesn't exist just by nature of how Bayesian statistics work. And that's fine. We have to just understand that that's the case. And experience is the nice gap. Like, hearing people talk about things is a nice gap between what the statistics say and what people are actually saying. Because, you know, if you're not accounting for outliers and things like that, or people who are reporting multiple different times in different ways, then you can get some really strange results. Exactly, yeah. So, um, just before we move on to defining feminism, there is there is one form of feminism I do think that we should provide a definition for, because it's a term that gets passed around a lot, and that's radical feminism. Absolutely. The way most people understand the word radical, they think it means like some kind of extreme, uh, you know, almost, it calls to mind something like a terrorist, right? Right. Radical feminism as a, as a word predates a lot of the zeitgeist around and, and the, the cultural connotations around the word radical. What radical feminism is, is just a belief that the systems we live in are inherently oppressive towards women and that they need to be changed. Hence why they're radical. They believe in radical change. Right. Um, and so the, you know, maybe some of them will be, you know, out on the streets wearing hats that look like vulvas and things like, or carrying around, um, what's the name of that uterus that always gets carried around in Bangor? I don't know, but I, I'm not a, I don't find it that bad. I mean, I'm not saying I'm get offended by it. I'm, you know, I'm I'm not some triggered millennial, even though there are lots of people who would probably say that about me, um, just because I'm in my 20s and that's just the popular thing to do. Um, but like, I think that, you know, those kinds of people and like the the old internet people um, that got passed around, like Big Red and Trigglypuff, mm. and um, those kinds of people are the ones that people associate radical feminism with, which I don't think is I don't think it was necessarily incorrect at the time because that's all it was for a, a brief period of internet history but now it's certainly um more nuanced Oh yeah, say. for sure. I mean um just to make a short plug for a feminist book that I'm I'm a big fan of there's a there's a book by Jessica Crispin Why I'm Not a Feminist and she's a she's a, a radical feminist but if you, if you were to read her book you would get a very different impression than the kind of internet uh, persona of a radical feminist. Yeah, absolutely. That's still one that you keep telling me that I got to read, and I keep meaning to read it. It's a but, really good book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as the, the university started for me. I'm super busy all the time. I kind of hate it, but physics and math are really cool. But I still kind of hate it because I don't have free time to do all that stuff. But it'll happen. It's going to happen. So, yeah. I was just about to do an episode on something physics related. I, yeah, like... Um, or maybe universities as a whole. Right? Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe our, our bridging episode after feminism can be something about STEM fields. Um, right. Maybe. I don't know. We're spitballing here. If you guys have ideas, just, you know, you know where to put them. So, uh, before we move on... Yeah, we have note sheets. We have note sheets today, guys. Note sheets. In 
in the vein of also having defined radical feminism, I believe that we also ought to define a bunch of other terms that get tossed around. Because like radical feminism, all of those other terms oftentimes get strawmanned or misdefined as well. Right. Um, so the the one that you've probably heard quite frequently is the concept of privilege. Right. So privilege is an advantage that some people have, some set of people have, that is unearned. Right. It's important to say that this is... This is a product of big numbers. Right. It's just true that if you're a black person, you're more likely to be incarcerated. You're more likely to be uh, pulled over and held with suspicion. You're more likely to be killed by the police. The list goes on and on. It doesn't mean that a white person should feel bad or that there's like some kind of inherent virtue in being non-white. It's just a statement of the kind of predicament that white people find themselves in. And whatever kind of way you'd like to slice that, because it also gets sliced on gender line as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, the, I think there's some level of, of a, a guilt by association that's involved with some of that, and um, we're super not about that. So, yeah. like, you shouldn't feel guilty for being who you are, regardless of who that may be. Um, you can feel guilty for doing bad things that are just actually bad, like killing people. Don't do that, please. That's bad. You shouldn't do it. Please. Don't do it. Yeah, for all the white men in the audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for all for all of you uh, fatherless white guys, please don't kill people. You're statistically more likely to, and we'll get there, but please don't do that. Yeah. So, the other word that we have to say is um patriarchy <laughs> so the patriarchy is a social system wherein men possess most of the power in a variety of forms including corporate leadership wealth political positions and social privilege again this oftentimes gets straw man a lot of people think that the patriarchy is the you know the dean of a college being a man that's it's not the case no. again the patriarchy as commonly understood, is a product of large data sets. If you look at just just look at Congress as a good example, you know the vast majority of political power is held by men, and it usually comes at the detriment of women, and that's just a, a statement of the way our society is set up. Yeah, absolutely, um, and I think a lot of things that go along with that too, like uh, what what how would I say like. Sure, there there are those differences numerically in large sets, um, and I think it's important to recognize that are the sets biased because of the choice of people, and that you know there are, and it, that would have been a good number. How many women actually run for government offices? Mm -hmm. um, because I think the issue isn't really there as much as it might be the cultural context that goes around it um which is a much harder thing to deal with which is why you know we said in the last episode there's no way to legislate our way to equal pay we've already done that and it didn't really produce the outcome we wanted mm -hmm. um i mean it helped certainly it was good it's you know having that be illegal to pay people differently because of race sex whatever like 
great. I like that. Um, the The problem is, I think, more just a cultural mindset. Yeah. And that is really, really hard to undo. And I think that's why I'm far less revolution and far more reform about that. Yeah. No, and that makes sense because um, there are a lot of feminists who would include that. I think actually most feminists would include that in the patriarchy too, the, the ways in which our culture incentivizes certain behavior that's usually at the detriment of women as well. Um, actually, there's a book by Frederick Engels on the origin of the family where he even believes that our monogamous family structures were really just a result of patrilineal property inheritance, which was an oppressive system for women. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. that's a much longer conversation, well worth a read. Um, but that gives you a kind of a, a good insight into what the patriarchy is, what they mean by the patriarchy. Right. I also think that Engels uh, had an interesting concept of marriage, uh, defining it as a state-sponsored uh, prostitution, <laughs> which... Oh, yeah, that was that was his, uh, his meme, if there ever was one. Yeah, that's... I don't get it. Um... I, I guess being, you know, you know, raised in the church, um, I just, I don't get it. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's just me. It's, I think it was more of a product of his, because he was studying it in the context of anthropology. Right? right, yeah. So the way he looks at it, it, it doesn't matter what the people believe so much as what the consequences of it is. Right. Um, and the way he saw the consequences was just horrible. Um, so other words that we have to include. Um... I guess, I mean, we'll get to them when we get to them. I think a lot of these are probably probably fairly obvious, um, but we'll get there. Okay. We'll get to them when we get to them. Sounds good. Sweet. So, last thing is, well, you you still want to do the waves of feminism? Yeah, I think that would be, uh, that'd be important to, to get, a, get us into why feminism is now what it is and not the way it was. Yeah. yeah. Um so the the concept of a wave of feminism is um just a history a history based kind of chunk of time where large groups of women were assembling and thinking similar things to accomplish some result. Um like end of the 19th early 20th early 20th century there was a lot of movement around women getting the right to vote and that was really big um as well as you know better working conditions just in general for um women and children in like factories and stuff like that because they sucked oh so much um People like Mary Wollstonecraft um, expanding on social contract ideas and um, uh, things including gender um, and actually making that part of social contract theory more readily. Um, let's see. Who else? Uh, abolitionists like um, Truth, Susan B. Anthony, um, Elizabeth Stanton, and Lucretia? Yeah, Lucretia Mott. I've never heard of this person. Yeah, she was an abolitionist and also a suffragist. Oh, see, there you go. People doing cool things, and I know nothing. About, <laughs> I know nothing <laughs> yeah, about it. <laughs> she's definitely a lesser-known name. Uh, but I think she ran in the same circles as uh, Stanton and Anthony. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So that was that's first wave. You want me to do second wave? Oh, sure. So the second wave was after uh, lots of suffrage. They were focused on uh, cultural and economic inequalities. Um, around this time, 
just to just to indicate the legislation that was the result of the second wave of feminism. Um, in 1963, you had the Equal Pay Act, which is what we were referring to. Right. And in 1964, you had the Civil Rights Act, uh, which included employment discrimination. Nice. So uh, around this time, you had Simone de Beauvoir writing uh, The Second Sex, which was um, defining what I have written down. Sorry. I've only read parts of this book. I should read more, and it's definitely worth a read. My girlfriend's read it and told me much about it. Um, but women are seen as other to the system that treats men as a default. Medical science studies mostly masculine bodies. Menstruation is poorly understood, and public life largely excludes women, was um, her main contributions to the feminist dialogue. You also had The Feminist Bastique by Betty Friedman, uh, Frieden, which argued that contemporary views of domestic life were bad for women, and among women she surveyed, women who participated in public life were actually happier. So that's the large push of the second wave of feminism. Um, incidentally, the second wave was regarded as broadly successful. They only had one defeat, which was the Equal Rights Act, I believe. Yeah, there was, I remember watching, like, some kind of, uh, public access history thing about that, and, um, it, from, they had some women that were, like, I guess in their 30s when that came around, 30s and 40s, um, and they specifically chose women to represent this group of people who didn't actually vote to support it. And it was so funny because they were, you know, the, you know, puffed up, proud of myself, you know, I don't want to be, you know, X, Y, and Z, same things as men. And, you know, I'm the first one to admit that there are, like, actual real biological differences between men and women and they're important to understand um, particularly as it relates to how we can treat people better um, but it's just so funny to see how much pride there was and just you know I probably get you know belt beat by my husband every night but like you know I love him and I don't want to be I don't want to have myself not wow that's really morbid sorry <laughs> But no, it's it's it, true though. Yeah. It does happen, unfortunately. It was, uh, quite incredible that there was a woman who was fighting against the Equal Rights Act, uh, and her. I, I wish I remembered her name. She was plastered all over the news, all over the television, um, and her main contribution was just, well, we should let women be women, as if the Equal Rights Act somehow denied women the ability to be domestic housewife. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's equal rights. Like anybody can be the domestic house care person. Um, and yeah, traditionally it's been women because that's just how society kind of started out. Like that's just kind of how it was for a while because there weren't like child care institutions qua like we have them now. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly that put a strain on, you know, mothers specifically because just the way it was i guess um and there's some biological factors i think that probably go into that that you know are reminiscent of other species than humans but you know something that just sticks around right um and then i think that's exactly right you know it, it might just be women have a typical propensity to caring for children and in care professions as we typically see in the economy you know women are 
usually gravitate towards caring professions. It's hard to say how much of that is a result of our society's construction and of biology, but we know that even all things being equal, we might see women have a slight inclination. But there's no legislation, the Equal Rights Act, the Equal Pay Act, the Civil Rights Act, none of these things prevent you from doing that. So it's a complete straw man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but but pride is pride does that to people. Yeah. You know, you get you get into your you get into your camp and then anything that threatens your camp, you're just like, "No!" <laughs> <laughs> so, um second wave largely successful and because of this, when third wave feminism came around, it had a huge uphill battle because at this point people were like, oh, feminism's done, right? But for the third wave, you were they were very concerned about, as we had said, not just the legal issues, but the cultural issues, the ones that are much deeper and harder to, harder to pin down. Right. So you're looking at uh, sex positivity, uh, gender theory, um, violence against women is a huge one, and reproductive choice. And that those are the, the big issues that third wave feminism was trying to champion. Um, you could see them uh, in the Anita Hill testimonies against Clarence Thomas, which drummed up a huge amount of feminist activity. Um, the Family and Medical Leave Act was po uh, was made in 1993. The Violence of Against Women Act was made in 1994, and the March for Women's Live was, Lives were was in 2004. So those are the big cultural moments. Yeah, absolutely, and um, it's interesting too because a lot of a lot of what's going on now in feminism um, is thought to be an extension of third wave feminism, but uh, it's maybe it is, maybe it isn't. There's certainly a lot of commonalities, but again, with how much other things have changed in that span from like the nineties, it's, it has it has a different life. It breathes something new now than it did in the you know '90s and early 2000s, yeah. um, and it tackles new issues um, or tries to, I guess. Um, mostly, I would say dealing with um, understanding psychological identity and things like that. Um, I use psychological because that encompasses everything, whether it's sex, gender preference uh, I, I don't know what character you like to play in Diablo or whether or not you like to play WoW Classic <laughs> please don't 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 waste your time um, you know those people get addicted to that <laughs> stuff though <laughs> like um, I I never did I didn't like it but uh, the those kind I that's why I use um, psychological because it's it's a lot of it's a very personal, very personal at the individual level, and it's important to understand that and not right. not status ties make a statistic out of all of these things. Right. Um, and I think one of the one of the interesting things about modern, like contemporary feminism, which I would say like 2013 or so. Like, just as a, because that's what the paper says. <laughs> um, it's, it's been so interesting. The, the, um, 
pervasive nature of the internet has made uh, any social change movement just... There are places on the internet where you could be, you know, the new messiah, and there are places where you're being crucified at the very same moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really fascinating. Yeah. And it makes... It makes changing things so, so weird. Yeah. You, you have to, you almost have to beat the meme. Like, like when the internet memes you in a negative way, you almost have to, you have to transcend it somehow. You have to beat it. Um, you have to not be that thing anymore. Otherwise, the internet will continue to just um, lambast you on that meme. Yeah, I think that's a big part of uh, fourth wave feminism too is... Uh... And on the topic of cultural change, a lot of there's a big shift in strategy. So instead of just, I mean, you still see people marching on the streets and uh, you know, kind of activist action, but you also see a lot of it is um, changing our shared spaces. And one of the biggest ones, one of the ones that women have a lot of access to, incidentally, because of the democratic nature, I shouldn't say the democratic nature of the internet, but the open access nature of the internet is you know, our online spaces. Right. Well, and that's like the, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit as we were talking about like defining our terms and things like that before we got started. There was like, and I'm sure there probably is still though to a lesser extent now um, than about a year ago, there was like Tumblr feminism. And like that was, that was a category of feminism. Um, and a lot of it was where like the, the gender identity and sexual identity and that kind of stuff seemed to grow the most. Mm -hmm. And so there was this weird paradigm where everybody that was on Tumblr that was part of this group already knew all of this stuff. And so when it started to seep out into the public and everybody was like, the hell is all of this? All of the Tumblr people were like, what do you mean? What the hell is all of this? This has been here for years. And I mean, I say to a lesser extent now because, you know, the removal of mature content from Tumblr has definitely it, – it has reduced the traffic to the site so much. That was – it was a bad idea um, just overall. But yeah, the EU wanted it though. I, the EU wants a lot of things that I don't like, but that's fine. Um, and But that even too is like the part of, you know, the – the new wave, the fourth wave, if you will, of feminism and kind of tying it back even into the third wave is that like sex positivity, um, which I probably have some contrarian views about, I guess. Um, but like that totally undermines it. Here's this huge community of social activists and progressives and they and then Tumblr's just like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And I think that, as as we had said, you know, I think the reason why it all started on Tumblr, or I shouldn't say started, but uh, there's a huge drama of activity in Tumblr, is just because there's a there's an online space that you could, you know, say and blog about anything you wanted. Right. And they didn't have any real hard content restrictions aside from the obvious, like anti-harassment and right. anti-violence. So I th- I think that's why. You know, it gets it gets drum up this way because you know this is where that conversation just happens to happen, right? And now we have Reddit, and oh, that's accessible. It's not as bad as Twitter, 
because on Reddit you can escape the cesspool and look at cute animals and and um, better every loop is a great one. But yeah, it's it's bad. There don't go. I mean, you're probably already there, and we should have a subreddit when we get big. But I don't know. Nah. Yeah. Um, oh, fair enough. <laughs> the last thing too about fourth wave, um, as Vid said, the different strategies, the identity, but also intersectionality is a term that you hear get cost, tossed down around yeah. a lot. And fourth wave is very concerned about intersectionality. Just to be clear, literally all that mean is that you are multiple things at once. And that being multiple things makes you something over and above be both of these things separately. Right. That, that's all it means. Yeah. Um, greater than the sum of its parts. Right. Um, and that it gets that the intersectionality gets into some weird like uh, victim dynamics as it's sort of referred to not so nicely. Yeah. You know, the the. The victimhood ladder, I think it's like I, I've heard a, a bunch of if you watch Ben Shapiro, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, he'll wreck you with facts. <laughs> Not really. Yeah, he'll try. Yeah, um, you know, Aquaman will buy your house. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should look it up. It's it's hilarious. Um, but in any case, there is a degree to which that happens. I think again, that's that's a largely an artifact of the internet. Um, I think like if you talk to real feminists, most of them don't have any opinion remotely close to that no certainly not and um, but yeah. just yeah it's basically like hey you're a black woman so there are things that affect women there are things that affect black people but then there are there are those things compound to be even worse for black women when they overlap and really often really crazy and unexpected and downright ridiculous ways like you know take take the worst black stereotype overlap that with the worst female stereotypes you can think of and then you know what i mean is like extreme poverty right because uh you're like i don't know where i'm going with this but you get my point you know yeah like they it just it overlaps in, in heinous ways such that black women and the gender pay gap you look at that is like triple that of other of the average for women including them right and that's um it's an important thing to bear in mind um and it's also important not to, uh, you know, not to, not to play yourself off as lesser. Like, don't, don't make, don't mitigate who you are as a person because you fall into multiple groups that face oppression. Um, that was actually something, something that I find really interesting, though not surprising, is, uh, you know, people who people who had viewed themselves as or primarily identified themselves as oppressed people, regardless of what level they felt like they were oppressed at or whatever, um, you know, said that they felt a really huge relief when they stopped making that the you know, sort of apex of their identity was their oppression class and rather just being strong in who or what they were mm -hmm. um, and just going with that. And um, I know Jordan Peterson talked about that at one point in, in something that that was, uh, that was a big take from 
people who had traditionally felt themselves or just identified themselves as victims and then just stopped doing that and instead were just like, well, you know, what what can I do for my individual situation that can make it better and that can, you know, just improve my life in some small way? Um, it's not always about helping everyone else. Sometimes you have to take care of you. Yeah, there's truth to that. I have to... So I have to state my... I think my views are somewhat contrary to you. I think that the, the research does show that um, having having a sense of control over your life is very valuable. But on the other hand, having a sense of control could also mean um, agitating for the issues that you specifically face. And um, there's actually pretty interesting research that shows that if you believe yourself to be oppressed, it does severely harm you. But if you believe yourself to be oppressed, but you're also doing something about it, there's there's actually a lot of beneficial impacts from that. Um, I'll see if I can get a link to that research below. But um, you know, I think it's a it's it's difficult because we don't want to get into a situation where people just kind of ignore blissfully the kinds of problems that they face. And I think that that's really what happened with the ERA. Right, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, we also don't want to put people in a position where they feel like they don't have any sense of control over their lives. Yeah. And it's um, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who has suffered a lot of mental health problems and who has taken many different medications that have all um, fomented those problems. Feeling like you don't have control over yourself regardless of how that manifests sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, and that's, like, the most paramountly human thing is, like, having control over you. Um not me having control, you having control over you. You do, not me. Um, I I don't want that. You don't want that. I'm a loser. <laughs> hey, well, um, and actually, while we're on that topic, uh, sense of control, so... Do it. Hot take. I'm ready. No, it's not a hot take. It's, it's interesting that um, you see a lot of millennials, especially, suffer from... A thing called climate grief, okay, which is essentially um, depression brought on from a belief that there is no future for them. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon, but it it kind of parallels what we've been talking about here. Where if you like, it, it's a it's a super dangerous state to be in. Where you're like, if you believe you don't have a future, if you believe you don't have control over your life, um, it it does decimate you. But th this isn't like a mental health PSA, obviously. Or, you know, um, to refer back to our conversation earlier um, and rein this in, it's a lot of the ways we talk about oppression can make it appear like this is the kind of thing that people are talking about. It's not. It's, it's, it's more complicated than that. It can appear like that. I think some people can interpret it that way. Absolutely. But what, what we mean by when we're talking about this is it's a critique of the systems that we live in. And right. that's at base what feminism is about. Right. And that's what... That's what we want to tackle. That's what we want to showcase here. Because we don't care about the straw men of the, you know, the the actual extremists and the, you know, the people 
who are political lesbians. Are you familiar with that idea? Um, yeah, I am. But uh, it, I, I feel like that's something I don't want to touch. Yeah, that's it's it's quite the take. Um, and that's the I would say a straw man of feminism, honestly, to to lump all feminists into a category like that, which is definitely on the extreme end is not what we're trying to do. All right, so on to part two. Yes, part two. Um, who? Are, what are men? We don't know. Um, we used to know. We forgot about it. Um, we stopped caring so much about it, maybe, or something along those lines. And now we don't know what it what it really means for men to be men. We had all of these terrible, you know, you just have to be tough, you have to be brawny, you have to be, you know, smarter than everyone else, you have to work harder than everyone else, you have to be all of these things that are, like, basically unattainable for, the like, any average person or even any slightly above-average person to actually obtain. Um, and, like, that's, that's what men have to be. Um, no, first off. Um, you don't have to be anything except yourself and just be really good at that. So, mm -hmm. thanks. <laughs> yeah, so... What's a man, Justin? Please help me. Uh, that's uh, that's a hard question. Um, I've actually struggled with this a lot during my life. More so when I was younger than now, because I think now I just don't really care about it as much. <laughs> but um, this is there's some truth to this. So essentially, there you, you might see getting tossed around more this thing called the male identity crisis. What this means is, as James is alluding, what is man? Yeah. Isn't there a song about it? Maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Um, the, the short and simple of it is that the traditional gender roles for men are no longer acceptable. And, and there's a lot of good things that come around because of that, right? Right. It, the, there's this term called uh, toxic masculinity that you hear get tossed about a lot. And what that essentially refers to is all the ways in which traditional masculinity is harmful to society and to men themselves. Right. Um, but once you do away with all of the all of the horrible gender role models like uh, Indiana Jones being super sexist, for instance, well, there's not much left, and so it's very confusing. Right. Um, which you can see manifest now, where young men are doing worse in nearly every area. Yeah, and it's I guess like there's a the video will link in the description of um, Philip Zimbardo talking about um, men and sort of the masculinity crisis and stuff like that. And, you know, listening to some of the statistics that we'll get into a little bit that, you know, young boys are just underperforming in every area in school. And, you know, men our age are just kind of like, what do, like, what are, what are we supposed to do? What, what world are we going into? And, you know, how are, should we try to fit in with the classic model that we were brought up in, or should we be trying to, you know, forge something else all the while, you know, trying to even figure out how we're supposed to live? I guess the, the climate grief is definitely, I think just a, um, the, 
kind of a, a representation of just existential crisis, but some material way of expressing oh. just deep, um, to use the Kierkegaard term, angst, of which is slightly different than angst. It's slightly different because it's a German word from a Danish guy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, you want to start getting into those statistics? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Oh, me specifically. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, it's probably no surprise um, that we have to talk about male suicide because the rates are astronomical. Um, three and a half times more likely that a man will commit suicide than a woman. Um, and actually, I don't... We didn't have it written down, but... Um, it's also more likely that they will commit suicide in ways that don't cause pain, which is interesting. Oh, that's um, interesting. Something that doesn't have, like, some kind of reversible quality. Like... Firearms is uh, what I understand to be the most common. Yes. Uh, a shotgun blowjob, if you will. Um... <laughs> To, to use a perfectly unacceptable term for it. Um, and suicide causes uh, 20% of death for men between the ages of 15 and 34. Um, that's fucking disgusting. That's awful. Yeah. And it's literally second highest only behind unintentional injuries. <laughs> we need to have OSHA, but for male suicide. <laughs> Actually. Yeah, like... We'll get to that. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this is due to, um, you know, that classic idea of, you know, men aren't supposed to ask for help. You know, it's the it's that classic thing of, like, you know, oh, honey, let's stop for directions. No, I know where I'm going. It's like, well, no, you don't. You're going to drive around in circles for three hours and look like a complete moron. Um, or I, I hope you do. So like that, that part of it. And then also the, the blind eye that gets turned a lot of times to men's mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I have health insurance and can see a therapist. I don't anymore, but you know, I was really thankful that I was able to actually do that because I know a lot of people that need attention like that can't get it. Um, and there's a lot of there's a high propensity to tell men not to do those things or that from, you know, a very early age that they should be super emotional, that they, you know, there's this movement to try to correct that. And I think it's potentially overshooting that, you know, now men are, you know, kind of overly emotional, perhaps, or being told to be far more emotional and outgoing about it than is really necessary or even healthy mm -hmm. for any person, um, male or female or, you know, whatever else, um, that that's an overcorrection, that that might potentially do just as much, well, hopefully it will do less harm, but still might be harmful. Yeah, there are clearly ways in which suicide affects men differently another statistic i've heard is that women attempt suicide more but men are far more successful at it is what it is um i think that one of the things that we don't have adequate understanding of is um like the things that drive men to commit suicide i think are different than women 
um, a lot of so in, another demographic statistics that is super interesting so the average person who commits suicide is a white male and like you're talking I think it's like a rural white male and a lot of it has to do with economic instability um, familial I'm not so sure about the familial instability but just generally they if the sources of meaning and fulfillment in their life gets pulled out from under them it men typically fall into deep deep depression yeah absolutely actually and if you've ever watched anything from andrew yang you you hear this statistic too um they if a middle-aged man loses their job they're more likely to file for disability than get a new one and that a lot of it has to do with like the way men work factors into men's lives is usually a source of meaning absolutely and well i think that's true for anybody but there's certainly a lot of like you know the you kind of get the you know the 60 70 year old guy that's like well i w i did such and such a thing for you know 45 years or mm -hmm. whatever and it's like and it's not that like great i'm glad you enjoyed the work that you did for your entire li working life like that's that's really awesome and s there are very few people that actually experience that um i hope you did enjoy it but that kind of like i identify with the job that i have like you know i don't just say i don't ad address people as like hi i'm james i'm an it technician like mm -hmm. i don't really i mean i like my jobs i i enjoy doing them and i think i'm pretty good at them but i don't they're not the meaning that i find um certainly but it's and it's easy to identify yourself with work because you do it so much. Yeah. Especially um, men, like, they, they work a lot of overtime, which is horrible for them. Yeah. So, well, actually, we should have said that in the gender pay gap. That, that would have been a good thing to bring up. But men work a lot more. But that's not a good thing. The amount they work is insane. It's it's entirely unhealthy. Do less. <laughs> well, it's, it's seriously. I mean, this is, I think... Again, as we said, this is a clashing of um, traditional gender roles with uh, modernity. You know, nowadays it's really vast majority of people are going to have like two to three career switches in their lifetime. Right. You know, to, to, so identifying with your work, especially when that work is precarious and in a fast-moving economy, is horrible for you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, I guess this is kind of related that like we think about. Like four-year university tracks mm -hmm. are not even realistic anymore. No, but like, what's the average bachelor degree under in five and a half years? Yeah, now? something like that. It's it's and it's pushing six pretty quick. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not really surprising, as you know, you know, maybe you don't do well in one semester or another, and then you just decide to take time off to work or to do something else, or you have to be working full time while you're going to school because. You just can't pay for it, and financial aid systems are a joke. Um, and so that's that's how it ends up working out. And that's, I mean, it's not the worst. It's not the worst thing to take your time in college, um, not because you get some college social experience or whatever like that, because there's plenty of back alleys to do all those drugs, <laughs> or or just your bedroom. Um, but the 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 slowing down actually enjoying the material that you're working with you know i don't 
I can't even remember the last semester that I had where I had like a full course load up until this one, and I probably won't for very much longer because I get zero out of it when I have to give 130% the whole time. Right. Um, and that's, though I don't think that's specifically a masculine problem. It might be. Maybe maybe it's uh, the the ingrained in, or enculturated sort of masculine norms. But... Yeah, I think there's a, there's a classist aspect to it, at least. Um, the expectation is that when you're in college, you don't have to work at all. So you're, you're giving everything you have to your college career. Um, yeah, it's increasingly oh, not God. true. Um, but also, I think that the, the four-year regimen is with the expectation, at least nowadays, that you're going to get a job. Um, and that it's like trying to fast track you to employment, which, um, in a lot of ways is just not accurate to the average college student. Like a lot of college students do go to college for jobs, but they're also there for a variety of other reasons. I mean, you're talking about like 18 year olds, right? If it was just for like job credentials, you'd expect a much more diverse population of students. Right. So it's, it's serving a different purpose in our society. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was just thinking to like... Um, I have a friend in one of my classes who's from the UK and she's telling me that, you know, the, you know, bachelor degree or undergraduate, um, studies takes like three years for them yeah. and you can get a master's in five. And like, it's kind of crazy to think about that, but I guess they also have like a, a lower like general education requirement. Also, it's more like you do your specific, um, criteria stuff or whatever you're studying um and then that's it like you're just done with that uh and that's really fast yeah. like that's that's really fast which you know if you want to that's even assuming you can get a job with your degree which is becoming less and less possible even in competitive degrees yeah yeah well this gets us like pretty nicely into our next batch of statistics that indicate this problem uh, boys nowadays have worse out out educational outcomes in a lot of pretty severe ways um, boys apply to college ten, nearly 10 percent less than girls they get consistently lower grades um, in every subject including stem subjects yeah Ooh. um and the 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 uh, Theoretical reasons for this are that boys just have less self-control than women that, uh, and when they're young. They, their social development is usually like roughly a year behind. So when you put them in classes where you're expected to sit still and to, to read for a given amount of time or to raise your hand when you want to answer or say something, boys just it just emphasizes all of the weaknesses that young boys typically have right um and on top of that boys are pressured to be masculine and in these high, really toxic ways so for instance um boys will tend to value academics less and participate in more risky behavior um so much so that a lot of boys don't participate in the arts so things like dancing music and the fine arts um are almost enti almost entirely girls but the boys who do participate in those things do much, much better. And a lot of that has to do with uh, masculine stereotypes. Well, yeah. I mean, developing all parts of your brain instead of, you know, 
damaging all <laughs> all yeah. parts of your brain. Um, again, not not everyone, not everybody, you know, plays sports that do that to them. Um, but certainly, it's a it's a risk that you have to understand that you're taking whenever you do, you know, any kind of sport like that, um, where you know jarring physical contact is possible. But yeah, yeah. you're referring to football. I mean, th- it's more than just that. I mean, there's also hockey, um, which, yeah. whew, I mean, yeah, it's rough. But, um, yeah, I I loved being in orchestra. Like, fun fact, I play bass. Um, I don't, I play electric primarily because I don't, I can't afford an upright. But I played bass in orchestra. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was so good. And, like, Every time I got to go, like, because it's an actual class where I was in high school, and so I had it every day. And, like, my whole day revolved around that. I was so excited to go to orchestra. I was so excited to be like, I can just take a break from everything. I can just relax and, you know, get that you stress, that really, you know, positive focus. Uh, and that I was so happy that it was in the middle of my day because it it just got me through it. Yeah. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine not having that. I didn't do it the first two years in high school because I just I never thought about it. Um, and it just exponentially improved my high school experience. Um, ah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I I can say lots of wonderful things about it, but. Oh, so that's such a perfect – it indicates perfectly what some of the benefits, the supposed benefits are. One of, one of the biggest ones is providing structure to a kid's life. I actually wish I had these statistics on how students who do sports perform. I don't. Um, but I assume that this aggregates that so they do better on average than even the students who do sports. Yeah, and um... – yeah, I, don't I know imagine what... students who do sports do slightly better too, though, than their counterparts. Potentially, yeah. I mean, somebody who is somebody who's involved in things just in general. I think people who are closer to their responsibility cap tend to do better in all areas because um, they're they're operating at their maximum. But that also makes them very efficient at doing everything. Because they're balancing things, um, which I think is probably where that you know C's get degrees thing comes from. Yeah, is almost certainly like uh, the people who get C's, like, and of course now it's like C plus B minus to actually get credit for doing any of this any of this coursework. Um, you know, employers look at that and it's like, yeah, they got all C's in all of their classes, but like, you know, look at that's probably a reflection of you know, decent time management skills and the amount of other stuff that they get to do. Whereas, you know, the straight A student that literally just spends all their time studying is just, that's all they know how to do. Don't don't at me, man. You don't spend all your time studying. I did. Well, yeah. But, but you did it. I mean, I remember you going and hanging out with all of the philosophy people. So you were, you were definitely socializing with it. I wasn't socializing with the philosophy people. I wasn't cool enough. Um, I was also, I came in way late, and so nobody really knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, 
I'm kind of moderate and a little bit conservative. Also, I believe in God, and that was the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> for for unfortunately for too many of them, it's um. Hey, we're here though. Yeah, here we are. Um, you know, very very different people who graduated from the same place with the same goal. <laughs> and maybe this maybe this is how we grow old together, Justin. Ah, uh, yeah, probably. I, I certainly hope not. i mean i don't want to grow old in my basement that's for sure um yeah actually speaking of um speaking of uh basement dwelling men um that's also more common now um men not moving out of their parents houses yeah 25 percent of men 20 to 29 yeah it's it's ridiculous um i'm not saying that like it's it's not necessarily the individual man's fault. Um, certainly, sometimes it is. Um, you know, people who don't take responsibility for their own lives or don't take the initiative to go out and do stuff, like, yeah, your lives aren't going to be great, um, and you're probably going to be depressed and anxious, but, you know, there has to be a point where where you help yourself or at least ask somebody to help you help yourself. Mm-hmm. Um and there is a certain amount of personal responsibility you have to take for that. Um, but it just, it floors me. I mean, of course, I'm 24 living at my parents' house, so what do I know about <laughs> about this? But um, it's really astounding that that number is still increasing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sad, really. It's important to say, too, it's not entirely attributable to material outcomes because women the number for women i think is eight percent it's it's astoundingly lower um and the the reasons why supposedly are that um for men especially young men they're way more present oriented right than women and so unless they are trained to value other things they're going to just do whatever can get them the most pleasure in the moment. Actually, this this gets us perfectly, and while we're talking about basement dwelling, right. um, boys play an astounding amount of video games and watch far too much porn. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, any porn is far too much because of just the way that it's done now. It's it's bad. Um, unless you have, you know, there's always the people that are like, pay for your porn, you know, support your local thought or whatever. Um, who has the money for that, first of all? But also, what person would pay for it when there's like a million hours of free porn and it's all terrible? It's, I mean, surprised 95% of men have a porn subscription. (sighs) You didn't know that number, did you? (laughs) I didn't, okay. It's not surprising that lots of men have them. But wow. Yeah, right. That's what I thought too. Wow. Okay. Um, that's well, I guess that does kind of go back to you know, present pleasure oriented. Um, yeah. And it's it's also interesting the um, the link the linking that to um, you know impotence and oh yeah yeah that um, you know the there are like young men and when i say that i mean like you know 18 to 34 or whatever you know young by working standards certainly um that have 
problems like erectile dysfunction that are basically just caused by masturbating a ton and watching porn that's super duper stimulating. Yeah. Um, and like it, it astounded me to hear that. I don't know why, <laughs> but it did that. Like y- you keep watching all of this super stimulating material. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know, in bed with someone and you just can't keep it up because it's not as stimulating as what you're used to. Um, it's um, it's astounding too because it stunts your social and emotional development, and you know the expected ways. You, they tend to be more misogynist. They tend not to know how to interact with other people. But there's also another side effect is that the the porn industry is. I want to be careful with my words here. Okay. So instead, I'll just describe it rather than trying to place a category to it. All right, I'm but, ready. The men are usually muscular and well-endowed and can perform for hours. Yep. And the women are usually slim, uh, curvy, the, the kind of beautifi- beautified stereotype. And loud and expressive. When So for a lot of men, they try to live up to this, I would say, highly sexist stereotype. Oh, sure. And it, it decimates their sense of self-esteem. Yeah. And... The other thing too is like a lot of a lot of that porn you don't even see the guy's face. Yep. It's like it's ninety percent it, or some such. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like it it hurts to know that. Like there's that's actually one of my one of my biggest critiques about like sex positivity in general is the we don't want to be so anonymous with how we share something so intimate. If that makes sense. Like we don't want to not have an identity with something like that. You know, it's not, it's not bad to identify with being a male. It's not bad to identify as masculine. That's not a bad thing at all. And nobody should say that it is. And if anybody tells you it is, they're wrong and you should tell them that they're wrong. But that just sucks. Like that. Imagine what that's telling some fifteen-year-old kid who's like, you know, just sneaking one when he should be actually sleeping. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna, you know, try to snag this really hot chick, and she doesn't care who I am. Yeah. And so I can just be whatever twat waffle I want to be, and she doesn't care. Uh, you know, and people don't work like that. No. Um, I mean, women are far more uh, interested in how tall you are. <laughs> um, <it> just <laughs> well, <laughs> random, random side take about dating apps, but it's men do it too. They like short women. Women like tall men. It's a whole thing. I, I feel like that's a hot take. It it is kind of a hot take. So if you want, if you want to be in on that hot take, become a patron. Sorry, shameless plug, but we'll we'll continue on here. Um, well, and actually, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that, too, because I think that the reason why that occurs, if we were to be all entirely serious about it, is the sex positivity... Look, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of sex positivity because I believe that a large part of this, including the porn problem for young boys, is because there's just a dearth of uh, sexual education. You know, oh, yeah. We, we don't talk about it enough. 
Um, but on the other hand, too, the because a lot of people now get their sex education from porn, there's just this huge uh, emphasis on physicality, such that um, I, I, you'll see the a thing where they talk about um, fat acceptance, and mm. they try to say, oh, you're beautiful or you're sexy, right? But that still is operating in the vein where your body has to be made acceptable to others. Right. And it's it's so bizarre to me to see um, that we're still operating in some of these frameworks of thought yeah. when we're trying to move past them. And this is actually, for those of you confused, well, we'll get to that because I think there's a little more statistics before we can get into like why we included this particular point in this episode and about our personal experiences with these things. Right. Um, yeah. Do you want – so you want to you wanna tackle the role models problem? Yeah. So All that's, right. That's, that's the last big thing to understand, why all of this comes full circle. There is a lack of male role models for most boys too. So – all of these problems are, it might seem like oblique, right? Like, you know, you might not have sex education, but your parents can talk to you about them. Or, you know, you might you might be playing too many video games, but, you know, if you had parental guidance, maybe that would be made better. But the thing is, is that the vast majority of boys are raised, well, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but a significant number of boys are raised in fatherless homes. Right now, I think the number is about one-third. It, yeah, and... And what, what uh, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old boy wants to go talk to his mom about sex? Um, uh, too bad you're not using your Freud mug today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's worse than that, too, because, um, I mean, for one, just having a single parent at all puts so much more strain on that one. But, like, on top of that, uh, you tend to identify more with a parent who's the same sex as you. It's just, right. It just tends to be how it goes. It's not a fact of life but um and so when boys don't have a male role model in their life they tend to just to throw out some statistics they have greater levels of externalizing behavior such as aggression or attention seeking a greater hyperactivity greater behavioral problems lower self-esteem lower sense of control over their lives lower family stability greater propensity for crime and greater antisocial behavior just all bad. <laughs> all bad. Just all bad. It's horrible. Um, so, and that's not to shame single parents at all um, in any way because there are lots of contributing factors to that that, you know, parents who fight constantly are probably – those kids are probably better off in single parent households, probably. Um, so if that's what you're getting out of, then that's fine. But it's really bad. Like, I don't know. I uh, maybe maybe some experience time, maybe some maybe yeah. some anecdotal time. Um, I love my dad. He's a great guy. Um, I learned a lot from him, and I enjoyed all of the. I still enjoy spending time with him, and I can't imagine. I can't imagine him not being around. Like, I can't imagine what my life would be without that. Um, and granted, I never felt like that was ever a risk. Like, I never felt like that situation was precarious at all. Um, and that was, you know, even though I have other issues, 
uh, in my life that that was one thing that was there. And, you know, there were some, there were some problems like, you know, not being emotionally available, stuff like that. But, you know, again, that's probably a, a product of an earlier generation of men, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and hoping we can, you know, change that piece by piece now. But I can't imagine... My mom is a strong woman. And despite being less than five feet tall, you you just don't want to be around her when she gets <laughs> mad about something. Um, but I can't imagine not having my dad around. That would be... That would have been bad. Just in general. Uh, me personally, um, I actually do come from a single-parent household. Um, well, it's a little complicated. And... The data shows that the younger your father leaves, the more impact it has on you. So I was, I think, like seven when I lost my dad, which is probably a good thing because the guy was a sociopath and, like, probably actually a psychopath. Like, the, he's insane, highly abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive. Um, but I noticed that, you know, as I grew up, I did have a lot less support in my life, um, especially. I mean, my mom was working constantly, and she had to. There's, right. there's five of us. Right. Like, it's not she, she. She didn't have a choice. Oh, geez, I didn't realize there were that many. Yeah. Holy I cow! Have, I have two bro- three brothers and a sister, and uh, two of them live under our house right now. And when I was a kid, there was three of us in the house, sometimes four. And then she had to take care of the other kids from afar because they were financially unstable. So I didn't have a whole lot of uh, support uh, emotionally. And it had a huge, huge impact. Like, to this day, some of my friends think I'm a sociopath because I, I, get, I frequently get called a robot. <laughs> Which uh, like, maybe because you just play with computers too much. <laughs> maybe, but uh, it's definitely the the way I process emotions is pretty idiosyncratic, um, and definitely at times unhealthy. <laughs> I mean. I'm not a stranger to that, but it's a far more expressive unhealthy, I think. Yeah. Um, but So, why do we include this in feminism? Uh, well, I mean, to, to pull a Jordan Peterson, you know, do you, if this, you know, kind of new breed of um, men, the, the percentage of, you know, basement dwelling guys who don't take initiative uh or anything like that which is you know i'm not trying to lump anybody into that category but you know do you want a weak partner like for for you men and women out there like is that is that who you want as a partner like no of course not why would you want to voluntarily choose to spend your time and exert life energy into a person who could not care less. (laughs) Um, And it's, yeah, no, I don't think any, any person would choose that. Like that's, you know, I guess there are, there are people with, you know, the, you know, domination complexes and stuff like that that are i'm not talking about like bdsm kind of things i'm talking like actual lifestyle things that are like damaging to themselves and to you know whoever their partners happen to be but that's 
do we want do we want to grow into a world where a large percentage of the population just doesn't care about themselves um the i mean the answer is no i hope i hope your answer is no but i uh, you know that's mm. that's why we're here because women have just as much or are impacted just as much as men are by the masculinity crisis mm -hmm. is as it's called like that's that's just a fact and we're not blaming feminism for that um certainly not like you know feminism qua as we described at the beginning um that's it's not them that's doing it it's it's really not um but it affects everybody and it's it shouldn't be the kind of really you know men's rights activism um and like uh MGTOW's men going their own way uh, that's i think a really bad representation of yeah. of like the attempt at trying to rekindle masculinity in a culture that is seemingly i wouldn't say suppressing it but definitely losing touch with it yeah um and that's why it's here because it's important and because everybody has to do something about it. It's not something that we can just, you know, men can't just, you know, go over here and sit in the corner and just, you know, deal with their masculinity crisis and, you know, whatever. It, it'd be great if we could do that because, you know, there are corners everywhere. Um, and, you know, maybe we could figure it out, but it's so big. It's yeah. so much bigger than any individual person. It has to change at a much larger level. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that I, I like how you said it. It, it harms everyone because we uh, we're it's slowly changing, but we we had this view that the only people who were really harmed by the rejection of femininity in our society was women. Um, but we're increasingly noticing the ways in which it harms men um, because, like, I, I think this is where the term toxic masculinity really comes from, right? right? Um, the the kind of hyper aggressive, uh, performing well, socially dominant individual is just not who a lot of people are, and holding that as an ideal is simultaneously harmful to women because it means that they have less opportunities in society. But it's also harmful to men because it's a lot of men who aren't that, and like in the absence of being able to be that, suffer greatly because now they're confused, they're bewildered, they're you know they they're lost. Yeah, you uh, you take away somebody's primary essence, if you will, or try to try to exaggerate it as much as possible, and you get people who don't know what to do with themselves. Um, when you said that kind of you know suppression or rejection of femininity, it's like, well, yeah, of course that's going to produce men that are hyper masculine because mm -hmm. if if women become more masculine, then there's a cultural shift that makes men also more masculine. <laughs> and so it's this, it's this positive feedback loop where you just end up with masculinity skyrocketing. And yeah, there is a point where it's just bad. Like there's a point where you continue to increase something and you get negative results. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that because, you know, nobody, nobody should ever say, I don't like that I'm a man because I'm masculine and nobody should ever say, I don't like that I'm a woman because I'm too feminine. Yeah. Um, 
and you know you can reverse that too um there's certainly a lot of uh a lot of encultured like you know men seen as feminine or just worse men yeah. um which i mm, yeah i don't like it that's it's not cool just just be you please yeah absolutely um why don't we uh i was gonna i was gonna go through solutions let's do it let's tackle okay. it it'll be a big episode just for you guys uh, and girls and others. Well, there, my reluctance is only because there's not clear solutions. As you had said, you know, we really want to change this. It's like cultural change. It's systems change. I mean, I think that the most immediate stuff is um, better sex education, that changing helps. our education system to work for boys, but also, like, trying to find ways to appeal to masculinity we need to come up with a new paradigm right yeah it's yeah and it's not about like catering to people it's about understanding their needs yeah exactly um they're not the same they're not yeah they're not (laughs) um but and that that change in paradigm too like just for for any guys watching like how many male teachers did you have in you know K through 12 or, you know, wherever you're watching from, you know, basically up until you got to college, like, how many male teachers did you have, really? Uh, I think I had three that weren't phys ed teachers, Mm -hmm. and then all of my phys ed teachers were men, Um, which, not super surprising, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's another statistic. We kind of glossed over that, and I, I wish we hadn't, but 75% of teachers are women. Yeah, which, I mean, it's, I guess, the um, kind of an extension and a reinforcement of that, like, uh, you know, child-rearing kind of thing, yep, yep. which, you know, for women who want to do that, like, more power to you. Go do it. Go, I was about to say go rear children, but that doesn't sound right. Um do that just you know go do it and guys don't be afraid to do it like it's great i don't like children personally i think they're obnoxious um but they're the future and you have to you have to take care of them imagine imagine how cool your life would be if you had all of the role models that you could have had be that role model you know yeah, it's it's big. It's important, and play less video games. Yeah, that would really actually. That would... Or at least Sorry. play in the same place as your friends. Like that would probably help. Um, go outside, throw a frisbee, um, do less drugs. I don't know. Kind of just throwing it out there. <laughs> um, actually, I have a. This isn't on the sheet. Okay. Would you say you're a feminist, James? Would I say I'm a feminist? Um, most, I would say probably, yeah. Um, there's a lot of feminism that, like, even just proper feminism that I don't, I don't agree with a lot. Um, certainly I think that for the, I don't agree with the feminists who try to ignore the actual 
physiological and psychological differences between men and women. Um, there are. There just are differences, biologically speaking. And I think that it's more important to understand them and work within them than it is to just outright reject them. Um, because rejecting them, again, will lead to this problem where people are like, well, I'm, you know, such and such thing. I identify as this. And, well, now I'm being told that that's bad. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not bad. It's just it's just you. And we want you to be the best you. Um, I also am not really keen on abortion, um, which is yeah. a whole thing. Yeah, um, we can do a whole episode. Yeah, and it's it's not about it's not about choice, and it's not about it's not about anything like that, and it's not about rights because you know somebody somebody was like you know the the my body my choice thing. I'm like, but is it your body? And I think that was uh, actually something from when uh, Stephen Crowder was set up talking about abortion. Who not somebody that I watch regularly because honestly he's. He's becoming more and more fringe lately, um, but somebody that I, I, I appreciate the provocative nature of what he does to get people talking and to, you know, make that dialogue happen. Um, and I appreciate the people who don't scream and throw stuff at him because that's super immature. But that's, I guess, where I'm at with that. Otherwise, otherwise I fall pretty in line with it. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, I think I know your answer, but do you consider yourself a feminist, Justin? I would consider myself a radical feminist, actually. <gasps> what? <laughs> yeah. So, um, radical in the sense that I do believe that, actually, even as we had indicated here with the male identity crisis, solving these problems requires deep systemic change. I mean, so much so that I believe our whole education system needs to be completely reestablished. And partly because of this, but also because, you know... Um, as you had said, there there's just differences in not just in gender, but like a different people. Like people have different needs, different educational needs. And if we're going to, uh, if you're gonna really help people where they're at, we need a, a education system that's far more flexible than the one we have. And I'm not just in, upon gender lines, but also just you know, uh, poor people tend to need more resources. For instance, is another example. Um, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. S <sighs> Those poor people, man. They just want everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> dude, yeah, just, yeah. Someone might not think you're memeing. They're gonna uh, cut that I'm, clip, and you're gonna find it on Twitter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up on Twitter. That's the kind of place Twitter is. It's a. It's a breeding ground of villainy and scum. Uh, to be uh, uh, super. Uh, Guinness about it, but we we hope that this was uh, an enlightening episode, something that um, cleared up some things for you, educated you a little bit. Um, you know, don't be mean to people, and don't expect people to be something that they aren't necessarily expectant to be. Um, that's yeah, that's I think my take from that. Yeah, that's my take too. Look, people are what they are. Don't if you come into these conversations with an open mind, I think you'll be genuinely surprised. <laughs> Absolutely. And hopefully you were genuinely surprised by by our conversation here. And on our Facebook page there is a picture or well two pictures of our uh Politiscales 
results. Um, you probably won't have too much trouble telling who's who uh, based on this conversation and any others that we've had. But see if you can uh, see if you can figure it out. It, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not going to be hard. And uh, shout out to our first patron. Thank you so much. Um, the picture mentioned in our last filling the gaps episode. It's going to happen. <laughs> I know you're not excited about it. Maybe I'll just I'll go back to my original idea. Just Photoshop it. Yeah. Like, look, I'll just. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It might. It might work. It might work. Uh, you know, that's going to be what ends up on Twitter is me with whipped cream on my nipples. Just, you know, I'm just trying to be my best self. That's yeah. that's what Doctor Phil would want. It's a self um, for sure. It it is a self that I I am a self, um, and. And shout out to Quarrelsome Rhino of Quarrelsome Rhinoceros Stitches for making us very tired moving you into your new place. <laughs> but it was fun. So thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, and have a prudent day. Yeah. V- yeah, oh, very prudent. Wise, one might even say. Um, should they ask the Oracle of Delphi if they're wise? Uh didn't work out for Socrates. I wouldn't recommend. Ah, uh, no. It's probably unwise. Yeah, probably. Probably unwise. So, we'll just... Our sign-off. Have a good one, everyone.